assistant pastor here. Now, if I can get my first slide, I don't know if you will have seen this story in the news. It wasn't made that much of over here, but in Burma, some 7,000 people were released from prison. Suddenly, kind of out of the blue, the government decided, we're going to release thousands of people. And among them, among them were some Chinese loggers, um, a couple hundred Chinese loggers who had been harvesting wood, the Burmese thought, illegally up in the woods. And they had been arrested uh, a few weeks back, carted off to Burmese prison, and told that their sentence for illegal logging was life. Life in prison. Can you imagine for a moment what it would be like? What it would be like while you're going around doing your job to get dragged off from doing your job into prison and told life. That's it forever. You're going to prison forever. And then suddenly, totally unexpectedly, totally unexpectedly, you're freed. Can you see it on this guy's face? Can, can you imagine what it feels like to walk out when you assumed that was it? You assumed you were done. You assumed you were finished. And there you are walking out of that prison. You're going to be home after all. You're free after all. You're going to see your family again. That's where the psalm we're going to look at tonight starts. That's the kind of story it's connected to. That's, that's the picture of what it looks like to be suddenly, suddenly free. We've been exploring the lyrics from God's songbook, the book of the Psalms, these last weeks in our evening church. We've been using a subset of them called the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms for pilgrims while they're on their annual journeys up to Jerusalem to meet with God. And um, today we've come to Psalm 126, and I think it's got a lot to say to us. So why don't we read it together? If you want to read along in one of these red Bibles in the pews, it's on page 623. Psalm 126, on page 623. And just so it doesn't catch you out, in verse 4, I'm going to read from the footnote rather than the main text, Okay. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. Bring back our captives, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Psalm 126. Before we can think about what this psalm has to say to us, we need to think about what it said to its original audience. What it said to God's people millennia ago as they 
walked on these pilgrimages again and again up to Jerusalem to worship God. Now the psalm starts by recalling uh, an amazing homecoming for God's people. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. That's how verse 1 puts it. What's in view there? Well, I don't know if you know your Bibles or not here tonight, but if you do know the story of God's people, you'll know God brought them out of Egypt with those uh, famous plagues, with the sea opening. He brought them through the desert and into a promised land and planted them there in that promised land where they prospered and thrived and multiplied. But also where they turned away from him again and again. Now he warned them through his prophets, through his priests, through his words, and through their circumstances that he wasn't going to tolerate their turning away. He wasn't going to tolerate their rebellion forever. Despite the Assyrian Empire sweeping in and destroying the north of the land, leaving it completely waste, the rebellion carried on. And so ultimately God used Babylon, one of the ancient mighty military powers, to utterly destroy the land, to sweep away the last of God's people away from the land he had given them, the land he promised them, and to carry them far away into into exile. It's an incredibly bleak moment in Israel's history, a line of kings stretching all the way back to the famous King David, almost exterminated, hanging on by a thread. This, This land which had been theirs for millennia, overtaken by others, just ravaged and destroyed. But in the midst of it all, there's a ray of hope. God says also through his prophets that the exile wouldn't last forever. He comforts them. He says, one day comfort will come, and it does. Seventy years into this exile, just like he promised, the Lord brought back the captives. Cyrus, who was the king of the newly ascendant Persian Empire, which replaced the Babylonians out of nowhere, suddenly decrees, you exiles can go home. Go home and build a temple. Build a temple to your God in Jerusalem. Anyone who wants to go, you can go. I'll tell you what, I'll give you the stuff to make the temple. You can read the story of this in your Bibles. I'm going to read a tiny bit of it to you now from the book of Ezra. It's on page 473 if you want to follow along with me. Just read a tiny bit of that story. Ezra's quite hard to find otherwise. 473. And this is just the very beginning of that story. Okay, so Israel's in exile, captive, overtaken by Babylon. A new king has risen. And in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Anyone of his people among you, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where the survivors may now be living are to provide them with silver and gold and goods and livestock, with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And you can carry on reading in Ezra and Nehemiah the story of what happened as God's people came back. But can you imagine that? Exiled, exiled for 70 years, exiled for a lifetime, exiled so that few people 
were alive who even knew what it was to live in that land, who knew what it felt like to live in Israel and to put their feet on the ground, suddenly they're free to return. Not free to return, invited to return. Not just invited to return, but invited to return and provided for as they rebuild the temple of their God. Finally, coming home. We were like men who dreamed, the psalm says. We were like men who dreamed. And you can imagine that, can't you? Stunned. Utterly stunned. And then it starts to sink in. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. That's what the psalm says. They began to get their heads around what's happened. We're really going home. We're really going home. Laughter returns. Songs of joy return after years where, how could they sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? It's such a remarkable thing that's happened. Even onlookers from other nations remark on it. You see that in the next verse in our song. It was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. People can see how remarkable a thing it is that has happened here. And then they themselves just echo this nation's cry of praise. The Lord has done great things for us. Can you get that sense of joyful homecoming? Can you get the feeling of just how astonishing, how remarkable, how sudden this transformation was? What it must have felt like to be those people. Why they sing. But what's this got to do with us? I mean, yes, we can be delighted that our ancient forefathers enjoyed this remarkable release. I think this homecoming from exile is much more personally, directly relevant to us. It speaks into our lives much more directly than just this amazing deliverance in the past of God's people. At least it ought to for Christians here tonight. Think of it like this. We once had our own land too. Do you know we had our own land too? A a beautiful land, a wonderful land, a land where we walked with God, Uh, a land where we lived in harmony with creation, Uh, a land where all was right, where the the ground provided fruit for us, where our fellowship, our community was perfect. It wasn't torn or ravaged by war. It wasn't twisted by hate. Our land wasn't broken or overrun or stretched. It was a perfect, perfect land. But in our first parents, and like our first parents, we too rebelled against God. Just like Israel in the land would not do what God had told them to do, we in the garden would not do what God had told us to do. Did God really say? The serpent asks us. In the face of his goodness and kindness, living in that perfect land, we turn away We refused to believe he gave us everything that was good. We wanted more. We grasped at power. We make ourselves lords rather than him. And so we too found ourselves exiles. Just how Israel was taken up out of its land and thrown out, we too were taken out of the garden and cast out into a different world, alienated from God, alienated from each other, Corrupted, taken into captivity, we became slaves to sin. We can no longer turn to what's right. We become subject to sin's consequences, death, 
comes into the world, that last enemy. See, every one of us, every one of us knows what it is to have a land and a home and to live in exile from that and to live in separation from our God. But if you're a Christian here tonight, you don't just know home and exile, you know homecoming too. You share this experience with Israel of a joyful homecoming. You share this incredible offer. Come back. Return to your land. You may go. Your, your slavery is over. Your captivity is finished. You're free. Jesus takes our punishment of exile in our place. Because he takes exile in our place, we can come back to the land we were meant to be. We can come back to the relationship we were made for with God, with each other, with his land. The enemy of death that held us captive is suddenly destroyed as Jesus rolls the stone away and rises. Through Jesus, we're brought home, restored, redeemed, Renewed people. So do you see how clear that parallel is? Do you see how clear that, that connection is between the God's people who, who lived in exile and enjoyed this astonishing sudden freedom to return and the bigger people of God who have all lived in this exile, distance from God, and now all are invited to join in this homecoming. Christians, this is our song. And haven't you sometimes wondered at this as well? Haven't you sometimes thought, this is too good to be true? This is too good to be true. Can this really be ours, this homecoming, this offer? Can this really be ours? We were like men who dreamed. And as we, as we grasp what's happened, as we understand it more and get more of a hold on what's been done for us, well, our mouths are filled with laughter, our songs of joy, garden exile, Freed at last to come home. Think of what's perhaps Jesus' most famous parable, the story of the prodigal son. We turned our backs on our father. We walked away. We wasted his riches. And far from home, we find ourselves empty, alone. Setting out homewards, we think, well, maybe he'll take me back as a slave. I don't know. Maybe I can live like my father's slave. Maybe I'll be fed at least in his house. And when he sees us, instead he rushes to us, embraces us, welcomes us in, celebrates the return of his children. Is this not your story here tonight? If this isn't your story. I wonder if there's anyone here who knows that feeling of exile. You know you're away from home. You know there's something you long for. And yet you wonder, is there any way back? If that's you, then this is for you tonight, this message. God calls you back. He decrees your freedom. He says, you're welcome to come home. He'll meet you on the road. There's no magic to starting to come back. There's no special words or ceremony. There's no special time it has to be done. You could do it right now. You could do it tonight. 
you could come home. You could come home to be with God. Maybe you came with someone who will help you. Uh, maybe you didn't talk to me afterwards. I'd love to help you do that. But uh, come and enjoy this incredible gift that makes us speechless, that fills our mouths with a song of joy. Don't stay away. So we were like men who dreamed. Can this really be true? Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. That's what we sing about. That's what we come together to sing about here tonight. That's why we sing. The Lord has done great things for us and it fills us with joy. I don't see very much joy in this room. But the just joy, joy at this homecoming. So you see that psalm was their psalm, that psalm was Israel's psalm and exile. And this psalm is our psalm as Christians coming home. Well, then we come to verse 4. Restore our fortunes. The main text reads, if you've got one of the church Bibles. But then see that little footnote? There's a little C after restore our fortunes. And at the bottom it says, bring back our captives. That's an alternative translation. The original's written in Hebrew, a very different language. And as I've studied this week, I'm convinced that's actually a better translation Restore our fortunes might seem easier. Initially, it might make more sense. I mean, picture yourself as being this Israel in exile that's been brought back. You've been brought back. It's amazing. You've been provided with resources for the land, but the land is ravaged in waste. There's just a few of you. Restore our fortunes, Lord. That might make sense, right? But the Hebrew word used here in virtually every occurrence means captives rather than fortunes. And in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same thing. A word there used unequivocally means captives. I think the footnoted translation is more accurate. Bring back our captives. So that leaves us with a bit of a question. Well, what are the captives that we're pleading for here, okay? If we're celebrating this amazing homecoming, if we are Israel celebrating back into our land, who are the captives who still need to be freed? But when the exiles returned, as you'd find out if you read on in Ezra, there were many who didn't come with them. There were a few waves of returning, one after the other, but still, even after that, there were many left scattered. Were these captives still? Even though the king had said they were free, were they perhaps captives still? The king had decreed, you can return. Surely they were free, but I think perhaps, though they might not know it themselves, I think perhaps they were still held captive after all. Not by chains, not by law, not by decree, but they were captives by choice. Captives simply through being caught up in the land that they had been taken away to. Maybe they built homes there. Maybe they started businesses there. Maybe they, maybe they married a girl who was from there. So caught up in that world they've been exiled to, it maybe even started to seem a bit like home. Maybe they even forgot what it was to be home. Maybe they even forgot they really had a home to come back to. That's the original singers, but what about us? When we sing this psalm, when we sing this psalm and we sing, bring back our captives, O Lord, what are we singing for? Well, Christians, when we think of ourselves as these garden exiles coming home, we have to know there are more who belong here with us. 
I have to know there are more who belong with us, more who belong back in relationship with God, back in relationship with each other, more who should be sharing this home. And just like those who's returned from Israel's captivity, we too can pray and sing for the return of more captives. Captives now by choice, home forgotten. Just a vague recollection, perhaps a story from another generation of what it's like to be at home. Father forgotten. Maybe thinking always been an orphan. Just trying to make the best of it in a colder, darker world. We can pray and sing. Bring back our captives, O Lord. May those who've forgotten this home, maybe those who have forgotten their father, may those who have become so used to this world broken as it is and twisted as it is and feel like they call this home, may they be released from that. May they be brought home. This is a mission prayer for us. This is a, this is a mission prayer for us. Now there's this uh, metaphor here, this word picture, streams in the Negev. What's that about? Well, the, the Negev is the, the desert country to the south of Israel, and um, there are dried up riverbeds there. And so they say, one inch of rain on the mountains can transform those dry riverbeds in an hour into deep, foaming rivers, can wash away roads and bridges. It's a picture of suddenness, it's a picture of total transformation. Singing this, singing. Bring back our captives like streams in the Negev. He's asking for it to happen suddenly and, uh, and dramatically, a complete transformation. A lot like how the exiles came back, right? Out of the blue, the king says, go. You're free to go. Now the remnant scattered around the empire, they're praying for them to come back. Makes sense. They could come back the same way, the same sudden transformation, asking for it just by the, tra- by the hand of God, a sudden stepping in and change. Let me turn over the page, and it seems like another voice speaks. Look at these last two verses of the psalm. It suddenly has a really different feel. In verse 5, it says, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Verse 6, Sowing and reaping seeds and sheaves. Now, we have that picture of a dry desert being suddenly transformed by a deluge of water. And yet here we're pulled to something much more ordinary, aren't we? Something much more ordinary. The annual rhythm of sowing and then waiting and then reaping. The, the planting of seed and the wait for the harvest. This kind of patient and plodding rather than sudden and dramatic. And we sung about the hand of God at work. And the amazing way those first captives were released. And the way that we were freed and brought back into our garden. But now we're talking about our own hand sowing seed. Our own back carrying this heavy bag of seed out across the furrow to sow. Two big shifts then, right? It's gone from being a sudden transformation to a slow and a steady transformation. It's gone from being a passive change where it just happens to being something we're participants in. Two big changes. It's like another voice speaking suddenly. And it's an answer to our prayer for bringing back the captives. 
It's a voice we've got to listen to. It speaks of three things. It speaks of hearts stirred. It speaks of... Slip. Sorry. Hearts stirred. A call to act and promise results. Heart stirred, a call to act, and promised results. We'll go for it one by one, okay? If you're a Christian here, if you're one of these garden exiles who's been brought home, you know what it is to live captive. You know what it is to live in a, a fallen land, estranged from God, separated, alone, fatherless in the world. Separated from purpose, separated from hope. Our friends and our family who don't yet know Jesus... They are still there. They might not feel it. Many of them do not feel it. They might not know it. Many of them don't know it. But the fact is, that is their life. Does it stir my heart? Does it stir your heart when you think about their situation? Does it it trouble us? Not as much as it should, I'm sure. Does it make us those who sow in tears? Make us those who sow in tears, those who go out weeping? When is the last time you wept over somebody being away from Jesus? I think to some degree. I think that's because we've only partially grasped what's happened for us. I think we've only grasped the corner of what it means to to come home, to be freed, to be welcomed in. We need to consider these things more. We need to reflect on them more often. We need to walk ourselves through where we were and where we've come to. But as I've thought about it this week, it seems to me, and and perhaps you'll be able to identify with this, it seems my heart often is not so stirred for other people. Actually, more because I've kept my distance from them. I haven't really dared to care about them, to care about their lostness, to open myself up to feel their trouble, their exile. I haven't even getting, taken the time to get to know many of the exiles around me, just nameless faces, the, the girl who serves me coffee, the, the guy in the garage, the parents of the football match. Building relationships. Building real relationships with people out there in exile is, is costly. It takes, takes time. Time most of us don't feel like we have. It takes space. It takes relational space that most of us don't feel like we have. It takes effort when most of us feel like we're overwhelmed already. It takes choice. When most of us feel like we're just passive victims of a life rushing past us, building relationships with those people in exile is hard. It's costly. But it's critical. So I want to challenge you. What could you do this week? What could you deliberately do this week to build more of a relationship with those around you who need Jesus? Is there something concrete or specific? Something even something small that you could do or change? Just take a moment and think about it now. Is there something you could commit to there?
So first we've got these hearts stirred, okay? That's where this answer to bring back the captive's prayer begins. Our hearts are stirred. Is your heart stirred for the exiles around you? Stir it. Stir it. Second, the voice speaks of action on our part. To engage in the work of bringing back the captives, doesn't it? It doesn't just say, sit back passive and expect the Lord to work. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong here. I'm not saying we can bring back captives. I'm not saying we can bring back captives. We, we can't save anyone. I think that's reinforced by this image of sowing and reaping. If all of us together exerted our utmost efforts, concerted for the rest of our lives on one individual, we could not save them. We don't have that sort of power to bring back captives. It's just like if all of us did our very best job in the world of planting a seed. Do you know how well planted it would be? It would have the most moist soil in the entire universe. It would be perfectly furrowed. It would be exactly the right depth. It would be covered beautifully. Could any of us make it grow? You see the picture? The picture shows us that, doesn't it? The picture doesn't tell us that we are bringing back these captives. It tells us we have a part to play. We're participants, yeah. Our work doesn't accomplish it. We sow the seed. We put it in the soil. But we're powerless. It's always God who gives the growth. That rule of providence is built deep into the world, isn't it? Built deep into the world. There's no reaping without sowing. That's a hard and fast thing. But sowing is not the same as growing. Sowing seeds is not the same as growing. Same rule applies to seeing garden exiles come home. Okay, If you long for someone to come home, well, not, not one of us can save a single soul, but God has given us the ability and the responsibility to sow. And with that seed, it's God who will grow the harvest. But we have a part. You hear the call from God today to sow the gospel seed? You hear the call to plant even though you don't know how the seed's going to germinate, how it's going to grow, how it's going to spring up. You don't know how that's going to happen. And you can't do it yourself. You can't make it grow one millimeter. But still we're called to sow. If, if you're concerned for those around you, if you're really concerned for those around you, if you love them, if you actually love them, then plant that seed. Plant a seed. Share, share the gospel. Share the reason for the hope that we have. Share the, share the story of Jesus. Practically, what might this look like? Well, you might want to walk through one of the Gospels with them. We've got guides to help you read through a book of the Bible with somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet to help them understand it and find Jesus for themselves. Maybe you want to do it that way. Or, or maybe you want to draw six boxes of two ways to live. It's a, a helpful tool that communicates the Gospel. You can get it on your phone. It's a great way to share this. Or maybe you just want to try and explain the great news of the Gospel yourself to your friends using words that will make sense to them things that will connect to their universe. But often it might not seem that the furrow is open enough for us to get the gospel in there yet. Then perhaps, perhaps you could tell them your story of how you became a follower of Jesus. In our culture, it's much easier to share your own story. Nobody can say that's wrong. It's just your story. You're just telling them your story. Maybe you could tell them your story. Maybe you could help them see how they long for home. Maybe if you know them a better, bit better, you'll see where in them is yearning for purpose in life, yearning for real relationship, yearning for someone to be in charge of all this. 
maybe you can show them how all the satisfaction this world promises doesn't really deliver and get them to ask the question, well, isn't there something more? Perhaps you can sow a seed by bringing them along to gather with God's family on Sundays. We've seen people become Christians this year just by coming to church and hearing the word preached. Maybe that's a place it could start for you. Or maybe, maybe you have a smaller group of God's family where they could see you loving each other and knowing each other better. Maybe you could introduce them to that instead. You're not going to do it perfectly. But you still have to sow. You have to sow something and then, and then God will give the growth. That's how it works. And that, that's the third thing the voice speaks about here, doesn't it? Those who sow in tears will reap. He who goes out weeping will return, carrying sheaves. You see, we've got promised results. Sowing works. Sowing works. However badly we do it, however often we get it wrong, however small that seed looks, however hopeless the soil looks, sowing works. We plant the seed and God multiplies. So I want you this week to be people who call on our Lord to bring back captives. Let's pray. I want you to be people this week who weep over those in exile. Know them. Open yourself up to care for them. I want you to be people this week who sow the seed of the gospel. Sow something, no matter how small, sow something in there. And we, together, will be people who get to rejoice as more exiles come home. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing these words as our own prayer. So let's pray together.